Welcome to West Church. We're so thankful you've joined us today. Whether you're joining us in person or virtually, we're excited to come together to praise, worship, and receive God's glory. If this is your first time with us, we'd like to give you a very special welcome. If you're returning, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it, and we appreciate you. Now, let's prepare to be inspired and encouraged as we enter into worship. And today, we are in the pivotal part of the story. So we've been teaching through the book of Esther all year long since the beginning of the year. And, and our previous teachings, you can go back, they're on YouTube, they're on our podcast. And the story takes place in the city of Susa, which is the capital city of the Persian Empire in the palace of King Ahasuerus. You get extra points if you can say that right. The king's highest advisor in his court is a man by the name of Haman. And Haman loves being in charge and has this deep need for everybody to bow down before him, so much so that they make it a law that in the palace, everybody needs to bow down before Haman. But there's this annoying Jewish man by the name of Mordecai who refuses to bow down. And Haman hates Mordecai who refuses to bow down, and he plots not only to have Mordecai killed, but to have the people of Mordecai, the entire Jewish race, put to death. And Haman tricks the king into issuing a decree to kill all of the Jews just because he hates Mordecai. It is an ugly picture. But what Haman does not know is that Esther, the queen, is actually Mordecai's adopted daughter. The king's wife is Jewish, but nobody knows. Esther asks all the Jewish people to pray for her because she's about to reveal her identity to the king, her husband, and she's also going to reveal her identity to Haman. And last week we saw that she decided to invite the king and invite Haman to two separate banquets as a buildup for her big revelation. And we read about the first banquet, we read about the first banquet last week, but today's story is the buildup to the second banquet. And it's interesting. Time-wise, it's taken 17 years in the story to get to this point. The book of Esther has 10 separate chapters and covers almost two decades worth of history. But it all slows down right here in the middle in chapters 5, which we read last week, 6, which we read today, and 7, which we will read next week, all take place in two days. And up until this point, there's been a lot of tragedy and a lot of darkness and it seemed like things were just going from bad to worse, but now it's going to take a whole different turn. Now, I don't know if we have any literary Old Testament nerds here today. I think maybe Rebecca Brinton. <laughs> well, this one's for you, Rebecca. Uh, I've been guided through this whole study by a book by Karen Job, who wrote a commentary on Esther that is absolutely impeccable. 
And in her commentary, she has a chart to describe the story of Esther and its flow. Could I have the next slide? So I hope you can see this. The bottom part of the chart, it's, it's like a diagram, is the movement. It's the plot of the movement. And here it's like the timeline. It's moving out, it's moving out, it's moving out, it's moving out. The horizontal part of the chart is the conflict, where the story's becoming juicier and juicier. You know, that, that special part that you just can't stop reading, okay? And the book of Esther has six feasts in it, two at the beginning, two at the end, and Esther's two feasts in the middle. And, there you, and these are all six feasts, the two in the beginning, the two at the end, and here's Esther's first banquet, which we saw last week. Here's Esther's second banquet, which we'll look at next week. And at the very top of the conflict, the pinnacle of the story, it almost builds up like a pyramid, is chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. That's the pivotal event in the story of Esther. The king could not sleep. And this is actually called, if, you, if, you, if you've ever studied Old Testament literature, a chiasm. It's when things kind of build to a pinnacle and build back out and keep repeating themselves. That's a little extra for you, okay? Now, you would expect the high point of the story to be something that Esther does or something that Mordecai does. They're the heroes of the story, but no. The high point of the story is that the king had a sleepless night, and it all begins to unravel, unravel during that night. So because the king couldn't sleep, he commands that servants come and read to him the chronicles of the kingdom. I guess he hoped that would help him fall asleep, right? What's more boring than reading the everyday workings of your kingdom? Instead, they read to him an account about this man named Mordecai, who the king doesn't even remember. In the Chronicles, there was this plot to kill the king. Mordecai found out about it because he had this low government job in the, in the palace. And he reported it to Esther, who reported it to the king, and the king was rescued from the plot. We read this way back in chapter 2, verses 19 through 23. And this happened probably five years earlier. And when the restless king Ahasuerus reads it, he pauses and he asks his attendants, what's been done for Mordecai? What reward has been given to him for saving my life? And he's told, nothing. Nothing? This man saved my life, but we've completely overlooked him for his good deed. And you need to know that there was a very strong tradition within the Persian Empire for rewarding your faithfulness to the king. They would come, the common practice was to make them benefactors and to give something good to them. And the king had been very, very remiss in taking care of Mordecai. So he decides that he must reward Mordecai that night right away. And that's what happens when the king can't sleep. Well, the king's second in command, a man by the name of Haman, who happens to hate Mordecai, 
As a matter of fact, Haman, last week we saw, he hated Mordecai so much that the very day before, he built a gallows to hang Mordecai on that was 75 feet tall. That's higher than the ceiling to hang a guy. And Haman couldn't sleep that night either, and he was up early in the morning so that he could go and speak with the king and ask the king permission to hang Mordecai. And the words are on the tip of his tongue, and he can't wait to get his revenge at last. And so the sleepless king says to his attendants, who've been reading to him, who's in the court right now? And they report back, Haman's in the court. Ah, excellent, send him in, send him in. And the king goes first. And the king says to Haman, what should be done for the man that the king desires to honor? And Haman goes, thinks to himself, who deserves honor more than me? And so he comes up, Haman comes up with this elaborate ceremony for the man that the king desires to honor. First thing, take one of the king's horses. The king's always had the finest pick of all the horses in the empire. One that the king has already ridden on that has the bridle with the crest of the king on its bridle. And then take one of the king's robes that he's already worn as he's been on the throne and put the robe on the man and put the man on the horse and have one of the king's highest officials lead the horse through the city shouting, this is what is done for the man that the king desires to honor. And you know, Haman must have been so proud of himself. He's going to be honored today. He came up with this magnificent way for himself to be honored. His own personal parade on the king's horse, wearing the king's robe, paraded around by the king's high officials. He's brimming with pride, picturing himself being ridden through the capital city as everybody's bowing down before him. Can you just see Haman daydreaming here about how great this is going to be? Oh man, he feels so great. Everyone's going to respect him now. Wow. And the king says, Haman, that's a wonderful idea. I love it. I want you to make sure it happens exactly how you described it. And I want you to take this. I want you to go and do it for Mordecai the Jew. (laughs) Can you imagine? There are probably no words to describe how Haman must have felt when he heard the word Mordecai on the lips of the king. The honor that Haman dreamt up to be displayed on himself, he was going to have to betray before Mordecai. The very same Mordecai that he was there to ask permission to hang at that very moment. Haman is being forced to honor the enemy that he despised because his enemy refused to honor him. How is this even possible? 
It's inconceivable. The entire situation, the entire story is being turned upside down. What a difference a day makes. And none of the human actors knew the full story of what was going on. Mordecai had uncovered that plot years ago. It was forgotten history. He had moved on. He wasn't even looking for additional honor from the king. That ship had sailed. The king never even knew that there was an actual plot against the Jews because Haman, in his trickiness, never told him what race of people he intended to annihilate. Haman never told the king that the race of people that he was planning to eradicate was the Jews, and it never occurred to the king that exalting the Jew Mordecai was undoing Haman's edict. And Haman, who was there to request the life of Mordecai that very morning, had no idea that Mordecai had rescued the king five years earlier and that the king had just read that story. He had no idea that the king wanted to honor anybody but himself. Ah. All the major players in the scene are completely oblivious to what has just happened. No one is connecting all the dots yet. All because the king wasn't able to sleep that night. There is no hero in the story. It's all just this weird twist of events that all seem to happen at exactly the same time in the lives of four people in the palace of the king of Persia. The biggest player in the entire story is the only one whose name is never mentioned. God. His name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. But he's the biggest player in the entire story. Nobody even has a clue what the other one is doing and what's really going on. But God has been at work through the entire process, the whole entire time. And when a person like Haman sets himself up to destroy God's chosen people, Israel, God can cause the king of Persia to have a sleepless night that results in the complete undoing of the plot to destroy God's people. God can use the smallest things to change the world. And what if we lived like we believed this was always true? I want you to think about these two facts again. God reigns over all our circumstances. We've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. There is nothing that happens in our world, nothing that happens in your life or in my life that God is ignorant of. What happens to you is not a mistake that, that took place while God had His head turned and was looking at something else. 
In one of the biographies of Jesus, Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said this. He says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care? And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. The circumstances in the world around us can be terrifying. War, injustice, poverty, lawlessness, celebrating sin and wrong, boasting that God isn't real. There's so much evil all around us, and it's available on the screen of our phones, on our computers, or on our TV. And it just makes your, your head spin. All these visions of evil, and the only natural human response when your head is spinning like that is fear. That's the natural response. We are so tiny, and evil is so strong. And the only way to get our hearts and our minds off of the hamster wheel of fear is if the Almighty God really loves us. Jesus spoke of a Father who cares. He knows what a bird falls from the sky. He knows the number of the hairs on your head. Now, some of us have lower numbers than others, okay? And the one who knows all of that about us loves us. And if the great God loves us, then we don't need to be afraid. He is God, and we are not. And knowing Him, we know Him as our great Redeemer. Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the great God over this wild universe, and He is our Redeemer. But secondly, I want you to see that the smallest details, the smallest details matter to God. In Esther, God uses the king's insomnia to turn the entire story upside down. And Mordecai's good deed for the king happened five years ago. Mordecai had moved on. It didn't matter anymore. But to God, it did. I heard uh, Timothy Keller tell his story kind of like this, basing it on a single detail. Here's my version, okay? Do you know I'm here preaching this sermon to you today? Do you know I'm here? 
Because my mother bought a collection of Beethoven records. That's why I'm here. That's right. My mother bought a collection of Beethoven's nine symphonies recorded by Leonard Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic. You know what? I never even remember her playing those records. But I found them, and I played them, and I love them. And when I was in fourth grade, somebody asked me what instrument I wanted to play in the school band, and I said, I want to play the violin. So in fourth grade, I started playing the violin with Mr. Petroff. And I played the violin all the way into high school. And when I got into high school, I was third chair in the first violin section. And there was this girl named Nadine who was in the second chair in the violin section. And she was a Christian from a local church in the town, where, and we became friends. And I was from a completely non-religious family. My family never went to church. And for six months, Nadine, in my orchestra class, shared her faith with me. And finally, she invited me to come to church with her. And I did, and I liked it. You know why? Because the girls were really cute in church. So I went to church for six weeks, (laughs) and after six weeks, there was a choir singing a concert for the church, and the music was beautiful, and I found myself wanting to believe in the Jesus that Nadine had told me about from the Bible. So I did. I was a freshman in high school, and by the time I graduated from high school, I knew I wanted to be a youth pastor, so I went to Bible college. And in Bible college, I decided I wanted to be a preaching pastor, except for the fact that I was extremely shy and nervous in public. So I went to seminary and became a pastor in a small, struggling church in Long Island, New York. And the ministry flourished, but I struggled. And I left the ministry for 18 years. And I came back into the ministry in 2017 as an associate pastor in that very same church where I first came to know Jesus. And it's while I was working there that I saw an ad on the Gospel Coalition for West Church seeking a pastor in 2019. You know, if my mother had never bought those Beethoven records and I never started playing the violin, I never would have met Nadine and heard about Jesus, and I certainly wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today here at West Church. Does anyone ever know what God is really doing through the weirdest little details of our lives? The significance of what you and I are doing right now may never become evident to any of us for decades. You can have the perfect plan for your life, but God could change it all in a moment. And the moments that lead up to that moment are all important. So use your moments wisely. Trust God and walk with Him today like everything counts because it does. The Apostle Paul had a protege by the name of Timothy. He wrote a couple letters to Timothy. In the first letter that he wrote, chapter 5, it says this. Paul was writing to a protege. 
The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment before them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. Well, what does that mean? (laughs) You know, when we sin, we do something wrong or we harm somebody else. And those little actions have consequences. They may be quite apparent to us and to other people, or they may not. Maybe they'll never be revealed before we stand before God on Judgment Day. But sin is foolish, and sin is damaging. It offends God, and it hurts other people, even the little sins that nobody knows about. There are no secret sins to God. And if you're struggling and you want to break free, you need to get it out into the open and ask for help. You need to confess it to God and possibly confess it to someone you trust as a spiritual leader who will be able to help you with that. Because in the darkness, what happens is little sins become more little sins, become more little sins, and they start piling up and getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger, and it becomes harder and harder to admit it and harder and harder to break out of it. So come to God and lay your life open before someone who cares for you. Stop living in a trail of secrets because that trail of secrets can become your own personal prison. Take it from someone who knows. Paul further says to Timothy that good deeds also matter the same way. Some are quite obvious. Other people see them and they notice them. And Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Good done in the name of Jesus brings God pleasure and points other people towards Him. But there's lots of good that's done in secret. When you call somebody, only you and that other person know about that. When you visit somebody, only you And that other person may know about that. When you're generous with somebody, nobody may know about that. When you say no to temptation, nobody may ever know about that. When you treat somebody well, even when you're mad or hurt by them, nobody may know about that. When you do the right thing and nobody else is looking, God knows. God sees, and God smiles. The little goods that you do may be recognized or the king may have seen to have forgotten them for a while. But nothing, nothing escapes God's notice. And the smallest details matter. And He invites us to live lives of excellence even in areas unseen by the rest of the world. And we can even expect God to reward us for good that is done in secret. He gives us grace upon grace upon grace. 
what an amazing God we have. So we're in our story today. The big hero, the main player, the guy who steals the show, is God. He's the ruler over all things in the lives of humanity. And He always does what is right for the benefit of His people. And because the king of Persia has a sleepless night, Mordecai is exalted and Haman is brought down. God rules over this entire broken fiasco that is the empire of Persia. He doesn't allow a single detail to slip. Mordecai's faithful actions come to the attention of the king at just the moment when Mordecai's own life is in greatest peril. Nobody knows but God. And all of these small deeds of faithfulness and faithlessness are known by him. And the craftiness of Haman comes back on it to bite him. And his pride becomes his downfall. And the most powerful people in the ancient world don't even know God is fulfilling His will and don't even recognize Him. What about you? Do you believe that God is at work right here, right now, seeking to draw people to Himself? When I was 14 years old, I was a little interested in God, but really interested in girls. And God used my misplaced interest in girls to lead me to a place where eventually I would understand that I needed Him more than I needed a girlfriend. And because a friend from my high school orchestra invited me to her church and shared with me over and over again that Jesus died for my sins and rose to give me a new life, eventually there came a point where I realized that's exactly what I needed. And my eyes were opened and I realized that I needed Jesus more than anything else and I believed for the first time. None of us, none of us are here by accident today because God is God over all. And perhaps He is drawing you to Himself. Perhaps all of the events of your life are leading to a moment when you receive faith and believe that Jesus died and rose again to forgive you and give you a new life. And if you sense Him drawing you towards Himself today, do not resist. Yield. Keep coming. Invite Him to come in and to change you from the inside out. Allow Jesus to be the hero of your story. Turn to Him. Admit whatever sin He brings to mind. Believe that He died for those sins and welcome Him into your life and ask Him to give you a new heart. Let Him turn your story around. Let's pray. God, we've, we've already sung how we need you, how we need you now. Um, you, you know especially each of us right here and exactly how we need you.
you know. And what we need is not more money, not a better life, not for taxes to go down or a raise, but what we need most of all is you, you, to recognize that you are the God of all and that you love us and hold us in the palm of your hand. And we need grace just to live each moment to the very best of our ability with your help. So as we respond to your word, Lord, in prayer, be with us and guide us and draw us to yourself. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.